You're listening to a podcast presented by Providencia West Palm Beach, a church that exists for the flourishing of all people located in the city center of West Palm Beach, Florida. Our hope is to love our city, listen to your story, and practice the grace of God. We hope you enjoy this content. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John 6, 12 to 15. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Margaret. Um, it is a fun night here tonight. Um, Ken is going to be coming and sharing with us. Uh, Ken is on record the youngest elder in uh, the entire denomination that our church is a part of. Um, <clears throat> he's also hails from the great uh, state of Illinois, Rockford. You guys have heard of it, I'm sure. Um, and, and as I would go around, because Kent's been to national gatherings with us for our denomination, this is what I would say to people, my elevator pitch to them. I would tell them there was a startup company here in West Palm Beach called Wander Bracelets. And in the first year, Kent took them from zero to a million dollars through Facebook marketing, that he became an expert in Facebook marketing. Uh, before that, when he was in college and he was just twiddling his thumbs, he decided to reach out to the lead illustrators at DreamWorks and, and Pixar and say, hey, my name's Kent. Uh, could I come do an internship with you guys? Would you guys mentor me? And they were like, sure, it's Kent. Of course we will. And so he did that. He did internships with them and, and learned from these people as an illustrator and then just totally switched into marketing you know, because he wanted to for fun for a couple of years. Uh, and he and Megan launched their own marketing company. Uh, they traveled around for a while and they were somewhere in Europe. And Ken said, you know, we could be here where the Renaissance started or we could come back to Kivas, to, to West Palm Beach and, and be a part of Providencia and help build Providencia. I think we're gonna come back to West Palm Beach. So we're like, awesome. Um, and Kent has been like such an incredible gift to our community, uh, such a blessing uh, to me personally. Uh, he's been not only a friend, but he's also been a mentor. He's taught me so many things. Uh, there, there are days that I would just go to Kent's house and, and sit on his back porch and just talk and just listen and just kind of uh, dream ideas. Uh, he's a man that I love to dream with. So I want you guys to get to hear from Kent tonight. Uh, so without further ado, would you guys please give a warm Providencia welcome to the man, the myth, the legend, Kent. Here he comes.
Thanks, Keith. Um, wow. I think I forgot what I was going to say tonight. So, uh, <laughs> my name is Kent. Just like Keith said, I serve as an elder here at Providencia. Um, today, we are talking about uh, the Summer of Rest. It's a series we've been doing this summer. I get the privilege and honor to speak to you all tonight. Megan and I, my wife, we've done something really difficult last year. We bought our first home. Um, that's it was it was a it was a it was a long struggle. There was a lot of researching and learning, and I am a millennial now who owns a home, which is I am an endangered species. So you have to protect me. If you see me, protect me. Um, but it was the most tiring and restless process leading up to that point. We began the process of sending a flurry of Zillow links back and forth, looking at things, trying to decide what we want. And there was one house that came up. And Megan is like, this is the perfect house. Every house we've looked at for her was the perfect house, so whatever. She was like, this is the perfect house. We've got to go look at it. So we drive over, and we turn onto the street. Megan has already, like, recognized the house. It's over there. Perfect, right? She's like, Kent, this is perfect. And I'm driving, and there's a man in the middle of the street. She doesn't even see this guy. Hoodie, joggers, boxing gloves, boxing ring. And he is just going the whole... Just in the middle of the street. And she's like, wow, isn't it perfect? Look at the yard. And I go, look at Mike Tyson right now. What is going on? And she's like, oh, that guy's just working out. I'm like, Megan, we cannot live next to the MGM Grand. It doesn't work like that. Like, I can't go out, take the trash, and then start going 12 rounds with Floyd Money Mayweather. I, I can't do that. That's not the house I want to live in. It was a very tiring process of going through this. We did eventually find a house. No ring, no Mike Tyson, thank God. Um, it, was, it was a very low requisite for me. It was just, please, no boxing ring in the middle of the street. Um, but the process was tiring. Um, and... You know, the, the, just being on Zillow and looking at houses, that process isn't really a demanding process, right? It was the fact that so many things had to be right about this. It was an intersection of us being sure of the place. It was a huge investment. It was us thinking about our future together in this place. And that thought process was incredibly tiring. And that's the type of restlessness I wanted to talk about tonight, is that feeling of this sort of looming cloud over you, and so many things feel like they need to intersect for you to rest. The 
funny thing is when you're talking to a friend and they say, oh, you just need to rest more. It's so hard to even say, oh, yeah, sure, I'm just going to go ahead and rest now. Like, if it was that easy, great idea, man. Why, why didn't I think of that? I'm going to start resting more. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean that we can just stop and start resting. Megan and I both own a marketing agency. Keith has also mentioned. Um, and essentially, what our main jobs is to create communication that incites action. So most of the time that looks like purchasing. Sometimes it's adding to cart. Sometimes it's giving an email. Sometimes it's learning about something, sharing something, attending an event, voting even. The main part of what we do is inciting action. And there's a few ways we construct our communication to incite action. They all involve emotion. They all involve some type of psychological triggers that people care about, but they all also involve one specific emotion. That's fear. And fear not just in the sense of like, I'm scared of spiders and I'm scared of snakes. I think that's a part of it because you can get very tired if you're running from a snake for a long time. I, I agree, that's, tire, that's tiring, it's scary. But also the sense of more of our personal nuanced fears that we all carry. Fear of not being good enough. The fear of not having skills or value. Skill, uh, the fear of missing out on things. The fear of not being a good enough father, not being a good enough mother. Fear of being seen as not creative. The fear of being seen as too creative. Uh, there's a fear in every single aspect of these concepts, and we all carry them. And the reason why marketing loves talking about these fears, loves to just push on them, is because these personal fears are most likely things that you're not aware of. They're things that only if you were well-meditated, well-centered, well well-grounded, you would know that about yourself. But marketing likes to pull them up and say, oh, you're not good enough. You need this. You need to go do this. You need to be seen doing this. And many times we don't say, oh, these are problems that we have. We don't ever say, oh, this is a fear I have. You just say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I do need that. That is something I need. One of the most effective marketing, but also the trashiest marketing, is, uh, is infomercials. Infomercials, we all know what infomercials look like. Um, might not be for you, right? Uh, but infomercials is a $150 billion industry. And the return on investment on an infomercial dollar is 12 times. So if you spend $1, you'll get $12 back. That's an amazing ROI, right? And infomercials do something that attacks something very specific for people. It's when they're tired. They 
play, and they're published at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and they go, hey, don't you know that you hate chopping garlic? And you're like, you know, chopping garlic's been pretty inconvenient for me. And they're like showing a lady who's like never held a knife before. And she's like doing this thing. And you're like, wow, is that what I look like? And they're like, hmm, maybe this is something I need to look at. And you're, you're tired, you're, you're watching this, and the person on the TV is slap, slap chopping garlic, the, char the garlic is magically getting chopped, right? And they go, because you don't hate, because you don't, you don't like chopping garlic, you're missing out on all the health benefits of garlic. Healthier heart, better skin, longer life. And you're like, wow, that's because I don't, I don't like chopping garlic? That's it? That's why? And they start changing the offer on you, right? They say, if you want all those things, you want a better life, healthier heart, pay $19.99. You get it. But guess what? We'll add another one in the next 30 seconds if you buy it. Or deal's off. We're gone, right? They change the offer. They create a sense of artificial scarcity. Like this, like all of a sudden you were just chilling in your living room being like, I am, like my life. And then they go, oh, guess what? You hate garlic, you're bad at chopping garlic, and guess what? You're going to miss out on this deal. And all of a sudden you're like, maybe I got to really consider this. Maybe I'm actually losing something here. This is this personal fear attack that creates a cyclical state for us where we're tired, so we act, and because we act, we're tired, and we live in this place that is acting, reacting, acting, reacting. And the, the slap chop garlic thing is a silly example, but it is a parody of what that process could look like for us in our lives. Another sort of example of a personal fear that's connected to me is that I was very worried. I had a lot of fears about marrying into a white family. And not in like a Jordan Peele get out sort of situation. Like I wasn't, I was never like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die right now sort of situation. No. It was that I grew up in a matriarchal family. My mom led the household. Uh, my mom is five feet tall, 100 pounds, very powerful. Like, pound for pound, very powerful. I have cousins in the Philippines, 8,000 miles that direction, who's terrified of my mother. Like, she's gonna reach into FaceTime and just grab them by the hair and yell at them. So that's my mom's side, right? We were in Spain one time. I was sick, deathly sick. I had a fever of 104 degrees, back to back to back for four days straight. I had to go to the hospital. My mom calls me. She goes, Ken, I have a Filipino nurse coming to you right now from Barcelona, and they're going to be there in two and a half hours, and you're going to be fine. And I'm like, who? Who is this person? Where did this person come from? She just, 
She has an expansive network. She knows politicians, she knows dignitaries, she knows people in the police force, she knows Bollywood producers. The Filipino travel nurse mob runs deep. I don't understand it. She is just a magnifying, attracting energy. So that's my mom, that's me, that's where I grew up in. And Megan's family, patriarchal family, her dad runs everything in the house, manages things. Her dad is South African, ex-military, semi-professional rugby player, big guy, builds houses, fixes cars. And if you guys could just line up in the middle of the church and feel how soft my hands are, you will know exactly what my personal fears are. Exactly. So he knows how to do all this stuff with a house, right? And I mentioned we bought a house earlier. I'm outside my house, and I'm like looking at it, because I guess that's what you do when you own a home now. You've got to look at it sometimes, right? I'm like, I think I've got to look at this thing once in a while. I never did that with an apartment. I wasn't like looking at stuff in the apartment. I'm like, now I'm like, oh, I think I've got to inspect things. I'm like, yep, that's a wall. That looks good. It's standing. All right, we're fine. And then I'm like, oh, what's that? Oh, I think that's something. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. So one day, I was looking up at the roof. And I was like, this is a true story, 100% true story. I was like, how do I get up there? Like, what if something happens up there? I got to get up there. I'm like, is there a big box that we got to buy? Or like, maybe if I stack some chairs and then climbed it. And then I went on my phone, started Googling this. I started Googling, how do I get up to high places on my house? Mid-Google search, I go, ladder. Ladder. That's it. I have no context for a ladder. No context. The only context I have for a ladder are snakes and shoots. That's it. I'm not climbing ladders. I'm not, I'm not moving ladders around. I don't know anything about ladders. I feel like homeownership for me is like, Plato's theory of forms. It's like I'm shackled in a cave and there's like dancing shadows along the wall of homes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good renting and I'm just gonna go this direction. So back to my soft hands. Um, my personal fears connected back to meeting Megan's family for the first time ever in my life. Um, a lot of things I had to think about, a lot of things that I attach back to my identity. I was saying, am I good enough for her? Does this family think that I'm good enough for her? Does this family think that I know how to take care of her daughter? And in that space of fear comes a whole set of irrational beliefs that I start creating for myself. Things like, I'm not good enough. Things like, I'm not financially ready for this. Things like, I don't know how to do anything with cars, and I think that means something bad. I don't know. And these aren't things that are conscious things. I wasn't sitting down one day and writing all this stuff down. It was just things deep inside of who I was and things I was stressed about. It pulled me out of the place where I could rest, where I could be certain 
of who I was. And I wasted so many, so many nights and so many times where, where I would be with them and I wasn't present with them. It'd be times where I was trying to prove something, say something, be something, because I was so nervous about coming across as a certain way. And that brings me to my first point, is our personal fears, we all have them. And if you don't think you have them, you must be really tired. And it's controlling how you act and what you're doing right now. So I guess then we say, how do we stop this fear, right? How do we stop it? And it's very simple. Stop being scared. All right, I'm done. Just kidding. Um, I know if I did that, Sarah Claire would be like, get this guy off the stage. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, we can't stop it. And this fear has been with us ever since Genesis, right? Adam and Eve had the fear of missing out on some fruit, and they go, gotta eat it. And thank you, Enneagram 7s, for creating original sin. I'm very thankful. I wouldn't be here with you guys. <laughs> um, and once they ate the fruit, they were scared. They're scared of God, scared to be naked before God, fearful of what has happened. So it's always with us. This fear is always going to be with us, um, unique to you, unique to who you are, your experiences. But it's not really about the fear, right? It's about our response to the fear. The tension we feel in society today is pretty similar to how Jesus, his time was back in Galilee as he was traveling around and preaching. At the time, John the Baptist was just imprisoned from King Herod because King Herod thought that this guy is going to lead a rebellion against Rome. There's a strong anti-Roman sentiment at the time uh, so bad that there were extremists, uh, zealots, who were outspokenly against Rome, militarized political groups uh, that really hated Rome. And it was a valid fear. I mean, it was a fear because they were losing rights, they were losing lives, they were controlled, and there was a sort of strong response driven by a nationalistic patriot, patriotism that was like, we need to restore this and this is what we were promised. And so with John the Baptist gone, steps in Jesus, the favorite disciple of John the Baptist, everyone knew that, and baptized by John, and people started saying, ah, here is the person who's going to now lead us. It's this guy. We are so fearful right now, but this is the person who's going to step in, who's going to strategize, 
who's going to organize, who's going to lead us, who's going to fulfill things. He's going to be our king. He's going to be our Messiah. And again, this label, this definition, this sort of word Messiah for them looked like something very specific. Like Jesus was going to come in, dismantle Rome for them. But we have this text that I chose for the today. And really the most important part of this text is the end. And I'm just going to reread it here. Um, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain himself. That's how badly they wanted Jesus to be their king. That's how badly they were in fear of this situation. They had an idea of what this solve was going to be. They had hope placed into Jesus, and they couldn't see anything else. Jesus was talking, preaching, gathering, and they're like, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. But we obviously know the end of the story doesn't look quite like what they wanted. It's also really funny because John the Baptist's followers and Jesus' followers were really different. Uh, there were a lot of comments about Jesus' followers looking like wedding guests. They would say, Jesus, why are your disciples, your followers, why are they always eating and drinking and not following the laws on the Sabbath? Well, John the Baptist's followers were always fasting, obeying. That's how different the culture was, right? And by the time Jesus came in and started preaching, there was already hundreds of years of Old Testament law culture that was being developed. I mean, there was other groups, high court, high offices, people managing the relationship between Jews and the Romans who were also fearful that Rome was going to drop the hammer on the Jews. And so they said, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll hold the laws, we'll take care of Jesus because he's like a little of a, like, a, I don't know, he's, he's a little crazy, we'll handle him, don't worry. We're going we're gonna to make sure everything is fine, everything is controlled. But this leads to point number two. And Jesus began to address these communities of fear and these institutions of fear by preaching about a God of love. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Sermon on the Mount. And also John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Again, the reason why this was a big deal was that everything they were taught of the law didn't sound like this. Didn't feel like this. Didn't have grace. Didn't have forgiveness or love. It had fear, it had the wrath of God that was going to come down. But 
in Jesus' ministry and what was important to him, he shows us Jew, Gentile, Roman, human being. You may want something. You may want something desperately from a valid fear, a real fear. But sometimes you're not going to get it. You're not going to have the leader you want, the reform you want, the place you want to be at, the circumstances that you want around yourself. There's no fleeing. There's no fighting. There's not a single action you can take to find the rest that you think you're looking for because your circumstances will never be enough. And if it's not this, it's something else. If it's not this president, it's this president. If it's not this party, it's that party. If I can just get this job or get this salary, if I can just have this relationship or if this skill set, these friends, this amount of money, if I could just get this. But no, it doesn't mean our issues are resolved. Because our rest can't be circumstantial. Our rest has to be found in our souls. John 18.36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. So we go back to our source of tiredness. So then what? We can know our personal fears, be aware of them, not buy slap chops all the time, right? All right, it's very easy. And we can move as Jesus commands us to love and to be loved. But that seems too simple, right? Just to say, know your fears and then love to be loved. And you go, Kent, I sure love all the time. I love everyone in my life. I sacrifice, I make meals, I reply to texts faster than you. I call my parents more than you. All right, I think this is a bit reflective of me. Uh, but you may say you love all the time. And I think that's not really necessarily the issue. I think it's the second part of this, to be loved. When was the last time you felt like you were loved? like you were cared for, like you felt it, like it was removing sort of a shield around you. Because we can always gift love, and you can always be gifted love, but it's not always the times where you really feel it, where you accept it, where you say, this is important to me, thank you couldn't have gotten this love anywhere else. See, while Jesus was performing miracles around Galilee and raising people from the dead and, and all these things, he would, he would go out of the cities, find these houses of leprosy where these people were alone, suffering. They had nothing, no people around them. And Jesus would heal them. And this healing... This, this love was everything to them. When was the last time love that was given to you, love you've received, felt like everything to you? When we 
deny love, when we shield ourselves from love, the process is dehumanizing. We lose the chance to be vulnerable. We lose the chance to feel what it's like to be human. And then we say, I'm a self-built person. I did this. I learned this. I got better. I took a hit. I got better. I did it. Nobody else did it. It was me. And we forget and deny every single person who sacrificed for us, who showed love, who was there, who's been thinking about us, who's been praying about us. And we lose all of that love. And point number four, final point. Do you love who you are the same way God loves you? And not in a way that is indulging in everything you want to indulge in, right? But in a way that is, do you respect yourself? Do you forgive yourself? Fight for your time? Know what you're passionate about? Or do you live your life acting on your fears? Acting and reacting because you feel like you have to. Because restoration and rest isn't doing nothing. Restoration is found in the things you love. What you're passionate about. And not the outcome of these things. Because when you focus on the outcome, you get stressed. Say, so it has to be like this. It has to be like this. That's what we have to let go of. It's, do you love the process of the things that you're passionate about? Do you give yourself the respect? Do you protect that? Do you know how important it is because of the same way God loves you? So to recap, number one, we all have personal fears and they're the basis of our tiredness, our restlessness. Number two, Jesus came to address cultures, communities, and institutions of fear. Number three, to be loved is a practice in rest. And number four, do you love who you are? All of it, the good and the bad, and number five, this is just an extra little point for you guys. Uh, home ownership is difficult. It's difficult. It's like an onion. It's got layers. So to close, I was talking to my therapist, and he stopped me mid-sentence. He said, Kent, you've been saying should, ought, need to, have to, a lot. Why are you saying this? And I was taken back because I was like, first of all, you stopped me from talking. And I thought this whole thing was just me talking. And I actually didn't even know that I was saying those things. He stopped me and I was telling him, Don, that's his name. I was like, Don, 
I have to do X, Y, and Z before I turn 30. I have to do this, this, and this before I turn 35, and this is what I got to do before I turn 40. I got to learn this. I have to be here. I have to be at this thing, and I have to achieve this at this time, and I have to do these things. And he said, where does that come from? And I sat there, and I sort of tugged on the question. I really didn't know at the start, but I started thinking, well, Don, if I don't do these things, who am I then? Who am I then if I don't do these things, if I don't accomplish these things? There was an uneasiness even talking about it. Felt like this language, this should and these oughts and these needs were overflow from a very tired spirit inside of me. What good would I have if I don't do these things? I don't accomplish these things. And he said, you'd still be loved, right? You'd still be loved if you didn't do those things. Your wife, your family, your friends, your community, they'd still be there for you, regardless of what you achieve or do. And when I heard that, he was right. But I was too scared to believe it. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for this episode. The work we do is made possible by your partnership and generosity. If you enjoyed the content and would like to support our work, please visit ProvidenciaWPB.org and click on the Give link. The music you hear in the beginning and end of our show was written, produced, and recorded by our music collective, Paradise Hymns. Find their original songs wherever you stream music. Thanks again. Have a blessed day.